Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Voorst, and I'm one of the pastors at Life Church and the host for this show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to this so that you can get regular updates uh, about this podcast, but also just about things that are going on at Life Church, because there's actually a lot going on as we enter into a new year of 2021. We have started off a new series called 21 Days of Prayer. And uh, this message that you're going to hear in just a moment is about the Lord's Prayer, but then the official 21 days will actually start on January 10th. That's a Sunday. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be gathering together on three Sundays, the 10th, the 17th, and the 24th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the church, but also on Zoom. And we want to provide an opportunity for us to get together um, both in person and virtually to be able to pray and worship together. And there's a lot that we want to pray for. There's a lot that we want to just sit and hear from God on. And so we invite you to join us for that. You can find more information about how to get involved on our Now page. That's lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And I strongly encourage you uh, to get involved with that. We don't want anybody to do life alone, especially in this new year, especially in a pandemic. So please consider checking that out. Also, I want to invite you, if you've never given before to Life Church and you want to support the work that we're doing, go to lifechurchcanton.org slash give, and you can start investing in the work that we get to be a part of. I want to thank you ahead of time for your generosity. And now, here's Pastor Daniel Fagbui with the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 5 through 13. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. And when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people may see them. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use mindless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose or think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth, that you've even given us truth about the basic part of the Christian life, prayer. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the will of God and so that all that we do today would be to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Please be seated. Well, as you sit down in person or as you, wherever you are, I have a question for you as we start. If I were to ask you to name 
the spiritual disciplines that you practice regularly, what would they be and how would you rank them? Now, some of you may hear the term spiritual discipline and perhaps you're not familiar with that term. Let me give you a definition of what that is. You see, spiritual disciplines are those regular practices and exercises that promote spiritual growth and development. Practices such as reading through the Bible, praying, fasting, studying the Bible, scripture memorization, fellowship, regular and ongoing attendance at church and with small groups, stewardship, charity, given to those who are less fortunate than you are, submission and obedience to God's word, confession of our sins, silence and contemplation, meditation on God, his word, his works, and his ways, and even journaling, writing down the things that God has done in your life. These are all spiritual disciplines because they promote spiritual growth and maturity. Now, if I were to ask us to list out all of our spiritual disciplines, if I were to ask you to sort of rank them from top to bottom, chances are, for most of us, the spiritual discipline of prayer will be in our top three, if not at the very top of the list. Now, I'm sure some people are saying, well, prayer is a little lower on my list, so don't feel bad. And then there are others who prayer is something you don't participate in at all. So perhaps the more important question is, how is your prayer life? How are you doing in the spiritual discipline of prayer? Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of prayer, wherever you, you locate yourself, whether you are a spiritual prayer warrior, uh, your, your prayer life is thriving and on fire for God, or maybe you haven't prayed since your christening. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, this sermon series is for you. Today's sermon is the first installment in a four-part series on the critical issue or the critical topic or the critical discipline of prayer. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring different principles and aspects of prayer. We'll even have opportunities for us to come together as a church and pray corporately. We'll learn how to come together in prayer. So I want to invite you and encourage you to join us for this important series as we learn the privilege and the practice of prayer. Today, my hope is to provide us with some practical principles that will either improve your already thriving prayer life or perhaps even jumpstart a non-existent one. I want to equip us with what it looks like to pray God-centered prayers. Why? So we can experience the power that comes through having God-centered prayer lives. Well, this is what brings us to our text today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. In this chapter, we find what people commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. More accurately, it should be referred to as the disciples' prayer. Why? Because it records for us how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. These are principles that he gives them. So these is really the disciples' prayer. In this text, we see Jesus equipping his disciples with God-centered principles of prayer, prayers that are principles that are meant to guide and guard their prayer life, principles that are meant to ensure that they would pray the type of prayer that God answers. That begs a question. Did you know that there are prayers that God doesn't answer? Did you know that all prayers aren't good prayers? Rightly understood and implemented, the principles that we find in our text today, these principles will change how we pray and even what we pray for. 
These principles will help our praise to be more God-centered. And as a result, we would experience the power that flows out of God-centered prayers. Because the only prayers that God answers are prayers that start with God. Say that again. The only prayers that God answers are prayers that start with God. Now, to help us unpack these principles and found in this verse, I have three characteristics, three characteristics of a God-centered prayer life that I want us to unpack. Are you with me? All right. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this is by no means an exhaustive treatment on the topic of prayer. My hope is, and my conviction is, that if we put on these three important characteristics, that, that, that the characteristics we're going to unpack today, that we will experience power in our prayer as we pray the type of prayers that God answers. But before we unpack these three characteristics, let's define our terms. What exactly is prayer? What's prayer? What is prayer? Now, the word translated prayer here, and perhaps even throughout all the whole Testament, is the Greek word prosukome. Prosukomai is a word that shows up 95 times in the New Testament. In fact, even in this little small section of seven verses, Jesus uses this word five times to refer to prayer. So what exactly is prosukomai? It is a compound word, pros and ukomai. Pro is a, is a directional word. It means to, to move towards someone, to move in the direction of someone. And so when you're praying, you're moving in the direction of God. And ukomai is to make a request, to request of someone, to, to, to move towards God in terms of request. So when we use this in the context of the Bible and in reference to God, prayer then is the, is the practice of arranging your mind, body, and soul in the direction of God in order to make a request. Prayer is arranging your mind, body, and soul in God's direction in order to request from him. Said succinctly, prayer is submission of your whole self to the will of God. This is the basic understanding of what it means to pray. Another question for you. Is this your understanding of prayer? Or perhaps even deeper, is this your approach to prayer? Do you submit all of who you are to God? Or is prayer about God submitting to your will? Now that we've defined what prayer is, Let's unpack these three characteristics that we see in verses 5 through 13. The first characteristic of a God-centered prayer life, you'll see this in verse 5 through 8, is having the right disposition. Having the right disposition. See what it says here in verse 5 and, uh, through 7? And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people can see them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees things that are done in secret will reward you. Some translations say, will reward you openly. In verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not use mindless repetition like the Gentiles do. Gentiles are those who don't know God. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need. Even before you ask him. You see, in these verses, we see that those who have and pray God-centered prayers, those who pray the types of prayers that God answers, they are characterized by two qualities. Or, or better yet, those who pray the type of prayers that God doesn't answer are characterized by two qualities. First is fake ways and frivolous words. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. 
fake ways and frivolous words. Jesus here warns in verses 5 and 6 that, that fake or hypocritical displays of spirituality when you're praying indicates you don't have a relationship with God. When you're putting on a performance. He says, and when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street. Why? Not because they have a communion with God, but because they want people to see them. They want people to say, oh, man, that's that's an awesome praying person. You see, for the context here, it's helpful to tell you that the Jews would pray at least three times a day. At the very least, they would pray in the morning, in the midday, and at dusk, right? And so they would plan their days to be at the street corner or in the synagogue at their time of prayer just so people could see them. They would put all their days and arrange their days in order to be right at the corner where all people are, where all business is, so everyone can say, my, 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 Daniel is a devout man. They wanted to show off their, su- their supposed piety, but truly what they were showing was their superficial devotion to God. They were not devoted to God. Verse 6 says, but as you pray, though, in, 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 in contrast to them, when you pray, you go into your inner room. Some, ver- some translations say your closet. Go into your quote-unquote prayer closet. Go into your inner room. Close your door. Pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in that closet will reward you openly. And some of you are like, well, I don't have a prayer closet, so I'm, I'm short at this point. I live in a one-bedroom apartment. It's, a, it's an efficiency, brother. I don't have a prayer closet. The point here is not this location. The point here is to talk about the intimacy between you and God. You see, the prayer closet, or the closet as it were, the inner room here, was where people kept all their valuables, was where they kept their most prized possession. In other words, for the true Christian, for the person who prays God-centered prayer, the prized relationship with God is more important than performance. You're more concerned about your communion with God, your time with God. You see, this is meant to indicate the the intimate nature of prayer. Prayer is the intimate communication between the person who prays and their God. Here here Jesus reveals for us that one of the main hindrances to having God-centered prayer lives is being fake with God, not keeping it real with God, coming and having ears, not being candid with God, more concerned about what people think about you than your relationship with God. You see, the Pharisees that, did, that, that are described in this text, they were more concerned about impressing people with their phony devotion to God than having a sincere and intimate communion with God. They were more motivated by looking devout and appearing to be spiritually superior than actually having a relationship with God. Jesus called this type of false display of humility and spirituality, he calls it hypocrisy. He uses this Greek word, Hippocrates, which if you, if you remember back in the Shakespearean days, actors were actually called hypocrites. Why? Because they wore a mask. To be a hypocrite is to pretend to be someone else. It's to be an actor. Next time you see a good actor, say, hey, you're a great hypocrite. Unpack that for him later. But Jesus uses this word here, hypocrites. He says, you are those who put on a mask before God. You are those who put on a facade, those who profess to believe in something, but you really don't. Those who wear a mask. You see, the Pharisees use their false humility and their phony piety as a mask for their spiritual emptiness, their spiritual barrenness. They had no relationship with God, but rather than seek God to have that real relationship with him, they wanted to perform for people. 
they were able to fool most of the people, if not all. But you cannot fool God. And as a result, Jesus says their reward is with them. They have received their answer. And what was their answer? The empty flatteries and platitudes that they received from the people. The attaboys. The you're awesome. The men, I want to be like you. All of that. That's all they got. Their prayers went continually unanswered. Their reward was emptiness. Additionally, we see in verse 7 and 8 that Jesus warns his disciples that the use, not just the, 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 the reality of having fake ways, but the use of frivolous words when you're praying is also indicative of a lack of relationship with God. In verse 7, he says, when you are praying, do not use mindless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Repetitious and mindless words are only done if you don't know who God is. We'll unpack that a little bit later. You see, Jesus reveals yet another hindrance, another thing that short circuits the, the God-centered prayer life. Meaningless and mindless words. The phrase here, mindless words or meaningless repetition, it's the Greek word batalogeo. It's, it's the babble of a baby. It's the droning on of a baby. It refers to someone who speaks without thinking, someone who was senseless in their conversation, someone who just repeats the same phrase over and over and over again. Jesus says this sort of mindless prayer is characteristic of Gentiles, of those who have no relationship with God. Friends, I can personally relate to this. I can personally relate to being fake in my prayers and to being frivolous in my words. I, my life used to be characterized by these two ungodly qualities. My prayer life was a performance. I grew up in a church in a context that, that, that prized rituals over relationship, that prized performance over relationship, prized looking pious and actually being pious. And when it came to public prayer or even private prayer, the longer you prayed, the more holy you were. Anybody know about that? The longer you are, the more adjectives and attributes of God you could string together when you're praying, the more you were praised and respected. In fact, we spend more time praying about God than actually praying to God. I know what it's like to have a disposition that was man-centered, a disposition that was about impressing people with my eloquence and my articulation. I know what it's like to have a me-centered prayer life. At best, it was about impressing myself, and at worst, it was about imposing my will on God and saying, God, let my will be done. Contrary to my disposition then, Jesus tells us in this text that the right disposition to God is being God-centered, is being unfrivolous in your words, is being real in your actions and your attitude. In a God-centered prayer, the mind, body, and spirit are focused on God and not impressing other people or yourself. A God-centered prayer life has only one audience, and that audience is God. Now, this is not saying you can't pray publicly, but even when you pray publicly, your audience is still God. We're not to be hypocrites. We're not to be those who engage in prayer from a hypocritical mask-wearing perspective. I know that's hard to say with us wearing masks here, but you get the point. What does it look like if there wasn't any COVID and you just walked around to God with a mask on your face? That's what it's talking about here, that you're hiding yourself from the God who knows you better than you know yourself. It's an exercise in futility. 
And it shows that we don't have a relationship with him. I know what it's like to pray those type of prayers. I know what it's like to be the type of person that was more about prideful performance and mindless exercises. Our prayers are to be characterized, Jesus says, by the right disposition. By having our minds and mannerisms motivated by sincere and sound relationship with God. And not by what people think. Not because of empty self-centered desires. Not empty self-centered rituals. This brings us to our second characteristic. So the first one is having the right disposition. The second one here is having the right direction. The second characteristic here is found in our text. You see here, your disposition in prayer reveals the direction of your prayer. Here's what I mean by that. How you pray reveals who you're praying to. What you're asking for reveals who your audience is. Candidly speaking, many of our prayers nowadays reveals ignorance of who God is, a lack of understanding of who we are praying to. In verse 9, we see, we learn about the God we are meant to direct our prayers to. We learn about his character. We learn who he is. We learn about how we are to react to him. We learn whose we are. So we learn all about who God is because that has to inform how we pray. Jesus says it here. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord's prayer starts with our, our Father. By using this word, Jesus teaches his disciples and us that we are part of a larger community. How many times does the community of saints show up in your prayer? How many cameos do you make in my prayer? Do I pray only about myself, that we are part of a larger community? And as such, we must remember the universal body of Christians when we pray. We are not lone rangers in an army of one, but we are in a community of saints, and we bring all of us. Our body is one. We are one under one indivisible God. And when we pray, we approach him with that understanding that he is not just my father, but he is our father. One body, one God. Not just my father, but our father. It's also important to note here that Jesus referring to God as father, this would have been a novel idea for the, for the Jews to hear. This would have been a novel idea, a new concept for the disciples. It would have radically shifted their understanding of who God is. You see, they had a concept of God as father, sure, but a creational father, that he created us. But they didn't have a concept of God as a relational father, that he relates to us. And so when Jesus drops this bomb, their worldview was shattered. See, they understood God as this great, distant God. Or perhaps even with Greek mythology in the context, they understood him as this God who is in heaven who only shows up when he disciplines you. But Jesus says, no, you got to understand that better than an earthly father, you have a heavenly father who loves you more than you can even imagine. God, for them, was at most a creational father. Jesus now radically shifts their mind to understanding God as a relational father who doesn't need you but says come near who has everything that he can ever have but causes you and calls you into relationship with him you see by inviting them into this new relationship Jesus now shows them that the chasm the gap that ex- that the eternal gap that exists between man and God was closed in him that in Christ, we now have a new privilege. 
we now have access to God. That the work of Christ on the cross grants us access to the Father to ask whatever we want. Do you know what whatever means in Greek? Whatever. That you can come to God. This is a caution against thinking that I don't want to bring that to God. I don't, I don't want to bother God with that. Or I'm too shameful. Friends, he knows you already. You can't hide from him. That's the beauty, that he knows all of our warts, all of our wrinkles, all of our concerns, all of our wrongness, if you will, making up a word while I'm preaching. Knows all of our mess and still says, come close. He invites them into an authentic and intimate relationship with God the Father, the provider and the protector. We are encouraged by Christ then to pray with the confidence and intimacy that we would pray a loving Father. We would ask him. But as soon as they start to wrap their minds around God as father, he then throws in here in heaven. You sneeze, you might miss it. He shows them two aspects of God's nature, if you will. You see, Jesus says he is your father. Wrap your mind around that. This is a new revelation. He reminds them that he loves them. But then he reminds them of the father's lofty location. He says that he is in heaven. Jesus holds up the balance between the imminence of God. He is near. And the transcendence of God. He is beyond. You see, here we see Jesus upholding these two important attributes of God to remind us that God is both near and far. Friends, he is near enough to hear our hearts cry. He is near enough to hear our pain. He is near enough to commune and commiserate with us. Oh, but God is way beyond us in every single way. He can see and do beyond our imagination. This is a God who is high and lofty, but yet close to your heart. He holds up this balance. And our Father, our Baba, our Abba, Father, the first words that a baby would pronounce in the Hebrew language, Abba, my daddy. But your daddy is high and lifted up, which makes his love for you that much more priceless. That this lofty God would come in man form and want to dwell among us. Jesus holds up this, this, this seemingly contradictory attribute of who God is. Friends, this truth should breathe life into us, that we have a God who not only can connect with our circumstances, but can correct our circumstances, that we have a God who loves us and, and calls us to come and talk to him. This should energize and encourage you to freely direct all your prayers to the God who knows you better than you know yourself. So let nobody, let no one, let nothing separate you from this privilege. Let nothing cause you to shrink back from this wonderful privilege to be able to talk to the king of all creations and call him daddy. You can and should bring all your cares and concerns to God because 1 Peter chapter 5 says, because he cares for you, because he loves you. Additionally, notice that our prayers are to be directed at God alone, no other entity. No other human, no other creation, but at God. Not the universe, not Mother Earth, not our ancestors, not saints, however devout they could have been. Not even your lucky rabbit's foot or a talisman or some higher power, but to God. Because all those other 
forms of worship and adoration are idolatry, the worship of false gods. God says, don't talk to anybody because they're all created. Speak to me. God-centered prayer, the prayer that God answers is directed to God and God alone. This brings us to our third characteristic. So we have a right disposition, the right direction, and now we look at the right designation. You have to have the right designation. God in his providence has designated prayer as a medium to establish his power and to empower his people. He uses this medium of prayer. Why he does, I don't know, but that's what he does. In verse 9, we see this, verse 9 through 13, he says, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us, not into temptation, but God, deliver us from evil. You see, in these verses, we see six important designations for our prayer. The first, you can break them into two equal parts. The first three have to do with God. His current and future reign. The last three has to do with us, our current and future needs. Let's unpack the first three sets of this. They focus on the present and future reign of God. Hallowed be your name, it says. Literally, may your name be holy, to be set apart. In other words, a God-centered prayer life is characterized by an ongoing desire for God's name to be uniquely and distinctively honored and reverenced in all the world. Second request, your kingdom come. Let your kingdom arrive, Lord. This is an ongoing desire and an ongoing reality that God is not just the father, but he is also the king of the universe. This request says, I want to see and experience your kingdom reign. I want to serve your kingdom. I want to see the full reign of God all across the universe. I want to continue to petition God that your reign, your power, your kingdom would reign. That all injustices will be done with. That all pain and suffering will be finally brought to an end. That all strife will end. All divisions will end because the kingdom has come in. The third request is your will be done. This is both a declarative statement and a predictive statement. You see, God-centered prayers are characterized by the continual desire to see God's will be done in every aspect and arena of life. Not that God let my will be done. But prayer is to submit to God's will and to promote that will, to want to see that will in everyone's life. All of these requests, though, are set to be done what? To be done on earth as in heaven. I love that. If you, if, you don't, if you kind of sneeze at it, you, you might just run past it, and it's one of those things that you say, oh, that's a good line. Let it be done. But you got to understand that this is a profound statement. You see, since heaven is where God currently chooses to fully display all of his glory, this text here is asking that, God, I want to see earth mirror heaven. I want to see everything that you do freely in heaven because you choose to, I want to see an unmitigated, undisturbed, unceasing rule and reign of God over the earth. Friends, the next time you pray that, understand that. That you're asking for a global, universal, unending reign of God in all of the universe. That you want to see the full glory on display The full glory of God on display in this world. This is the designation for our prayer. The first three parts of it. Question for you. 
Are these designations the focus of your prayer life? Do we pray with a kingdom mindset, with a kingdom agenda? Do we pray to see the will of God done? Do we pray to see God establish his rule? Or do we pray to want to see our rule established and our glory promoted in the world? Do we build our own kingdom? Or do we pray to see God through us build his kingdom? Finally, let's look at the last three designations. We've looked at the first three parts, which have to do with God's present and future reign. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. Look at the last three. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These three requests, they show our reliance on God for three important things. Our daily provision, our daily pardon, and our daily protection. In the first request, we see that God-centered prayer reveals reliance on God for daily provisions. This request that God should give us our daily bread is not just limited to food, folks. It includes all of our practical needs. This is a reminder that our reliance on God is even for the most basic needs of life, even our very breath. So when when we pray, we pray with the continual reliance on God for even the most basic needs. But not just the needs that he's already provided, not just a request for future needs, but we also in coming to God, show gratitude for what he's already done. We show a heart that's dependent on God. The second request is just as important that we see here that God-centered prayer lives reveal a reliance on God for daily pardons. That we approach God understanding that we're not perfect, that we haven't got it all figured out. It says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. Now, I want you to understand that this is not a reason to not pay back somebody that you owe. It's not a financial debt. Okay? So don't go to the bank, first, 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 first mortgage loan of America, and say, hey, the pastor preached on Sunday, and you should forgive me my debts you'll learn the other part of God, which is justice. This is the sin debt. Now, I have to be careful how I explain this. You see, sin, in the very core of it, is withholding from God the reverence and the honor that is due to God. It's withholding from God that which we owe God. And so when we sin, we essentially rob God of his glory. And so there's a debt. That comes from that. But I also want to help you understand that this is not salvific. In other words, this is not a debt of salvation. Because if it was, then that means that your salvation is dependent on whether you forgive other people. Because you see what it says here? It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven other people. Because if this was salvific, if this was salvation, then the truth of the Bible is completely misunderstood. The Bible says we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. This, though, is the type of debt that happens that robs robs us of our daily enjoyment and intimacy with God. The daily infractions that negatively... You ever sinned against somebody? Don't you become uncomfortable around them? If you hurt someone's feelings, if you do something bad, isn't it harder for you to act? Like if you did something bad to someone, you don't go there and say, hey, I need $5. You kind of feel uneasy. And so this is that that regular daily sin that seems to, to, to... seemingly separate us from the experience. Notice what I said, not separate us from the love of God, but the experience of God's love. Because the Bible is clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God. See the balance there? Additionally, this is not referring to salvific. So so this is not salvational, but this is that daily sin. And we, we are people then 
who, when we approach God in prayer, come to God as imperfect, understanding that we are imperfect. And so we beseech God daily to forgive us, like David said, to restore to us the joy of salvation. Notice he didn't say he restored to me salvation. He said restore to me the joy of it. I want to experience you, Lord. But as people who have been forgiven, we are also meant to come to God and release other people from what they've done against us. That's a harder one. You were able to say amen to that first one, but that second one, that you now have to come to God and say, Renee, you offended me, Lord. You didn't. I forgive her, Lord. Help me. Help me, Lord. Because I'm imperfect. Because I, gl- I, I, I see my sin against a perfect, lofty, high God, and he can forgive me? How much more me forgiving someone who is just as equal as I am? This verse is better understood as referring to those things that hinder us. But as I say that, I have a question for you. Did you know that unforgiveness can short-circuit your prayer life? Did you know that unforgiveness can negatively impact your enjoyment in God and the answering of your prayers? Finally, let's look at the third request. We see here that God-centered prayer lives reveal a reliance on God for our daily protection. Easy enough. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. This is a unique type of temptation. This is not the regular run-of-the-mill temptation. The word temptation here can be translated either as trial. And so in James chapter 1, James says you should pray for trials, pray for temptations. Why? Because there's temptation. There are a type of temptation that actually strengthens you, that builds character in you, that causes you to grow and mature. I have never met anything that doesn't grow better with manure. Amen. Think about that. You have to go through some manure in life, and it stretches you. It grows you. It makes you see God better. It makes you see your limitations. That's not what's talking about, what's being talked about here. This is not the type of temptation that that God perhaps causes, as it were, or or, or the, the trial that God causes. James is very clear that God doesn't tempt you to cause you to sin, but that God puts trials in us or allows trials to happen to show us how limited we are and how much we need him. Amen. What's being talked about here is a specific type of trial that comes or temptation that comes from the devil, that comes from the evil one. And the Bible here is clear. Verse 13, petition God for this. Pray to God that you would not fall into the type of temptation that robs you of your intimacy with God. As Jesus says that the devil would even love to unelect the elect, that the devil would love to rob you of your permanent relationship with God and with each other. He he is concerned about robbing us of our unity in Christ and with Christ. This is the type of things that we are to pray against, that we are to be praying that God will continue to rescue us out of the clutches of the evil one who seeks to kill and destroy. So that as we pray, we remember that we we have a tireless enemy who desires to permanently separate us from God. So we must continue to pray and rely on God for his protection and his deliverance from the tempter and his temptations. Question for you. Does these three things, do they characterize your prayer life? Does your prayer life, is your prayer life characterized by a reliance on God for your daily provision, a reliance on God for your daily part, and a reliance on God for your daily protection? In summary, as we end, here's the take-home point. God-centered prayer lives are characterized by three important characteristics. 
having the right disposition. We approach God in prayer with honest and humble minds and mannerisms. Secondly, by having the right direction. We direct all of our prayers to the God of the Bible, not the God of our imagination or our cultural traditions. And then thirdly, we have the right designation. We pray according to the purpose and pattern that God has designated for in his word. Here's some action steps for you. Just two, but they break up into multiple parts, so pay attention. There are three things that I found helpful in my prayer life that I'd love to share with you that if you implement, I believe will help an already thriving prayer life or jumpstart one that isn't. First is reading through God's word. I cannot overstretch how important it is to read through God's word to learn what to pray for. Reading through God's word has helped me have the right disposition, right direction, and right designation. And I'm not done yet. I'm still growing in that. It helps me to better line my words and my prayers with the will and character of God. And secondly, the second thing that's been helpful for me was meditating and praying through the Lord's Prayer. Meditating and praying through the Lord's Prayer has been super helpful. Whether you are a a new Christian, a neophyte to the faith, or you're a seasoned saint that's been walking with God way back since Moses was on earth, whatever you find yourself, meditate on God's Word. Meditate on the Lord's Prayer helps me personally to incline my heart to God and seek his agenda and not mine. Now, I got to warn you, the Lord's Prayer is not some mindless exercise. It shouldn't be some magical incantation or some magical spell, but it is a time to focus your heart on God. I use it when I'm praying to focus my mind on God, to remind me of what I should be praying for, to remind me who I'm praying to. And then even perhaps more practice, If you've ever seen me pray in public, I pause. Before I pray, I pause. I pause to take a deep breath. Why? Helps me to center myself as it were. It helps me to stop the noises that are around me and fix my heart and mind on Yahweh, on the God that I asked to pray to. In many ways, praying is entering into heaven, entering into the gates of heaven where all the angels are where everyone is worshiping God. And so before I do that, I clear my mind. I center my mind. I pause. Take a deep, I don't care how awkward it is for people. I've had people even say, hey, are you going to pray? Like, wait, why am I rushing? Why are you rushing? Maybe I should take a deeper breath. Because you apparently, you know what I mean? Like your mind isn't on God. So let's take breaths together. Um, so breathe. That's super important. Now the second, second step, right? So that was the first, first set. Second one is to actually pray pray. Learning everything we've talked about today and the things we will cover in the next few weeks, pray. Pray personally. Pray daily. And then there's three, there's two opportunities coming up to pray together as a body. Small groups will be starting on January uh, January 10th. They'll be starting 21 days of prayer and fasting. Join a small group if you haven't joined one. Be part of your small group that you're currently part of. Pray together. I've heard it said that the family that prays together stays together. It's very helpful to unite. Pray as a family at your home, but also pray as a church family. And then secondly, we will have three gatherings on this 10th, the 17th, and the 24th. Whether online you can join us or even in person, pray together as a corporate body to see what the, you know, Pastor Nathan was joking the other day. He said, we started 2020 praying. What if we didn't pray? What would have happened? Amen. So, but let's pray. And then so attend those prayer nights. Let's stand together.
Stand together as we talk to God. So maybe you are here and you don't know Christ. The access that we have to be able to pray to God is strictly because of Christ. He is the one that grants access to the Father. So, but there is one prayer that God has obligated himself to answer for people who don't know him. And that prayer can be found in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It says, everyone who calls or prays, who calls on the name of God, will be saved. And so wherever you are, whether you're in your car, whether you're online right now watching or you're here, whether you've been connected to God and you've sort of cooled away from the faith, whatever you find, or whether you don't know God at all, God has obligated himself to answer that prayer specifically. And perhaps you might pray like this. Watch this. We just finished talking about frivolous words and fake ways. Simply pray like this. Lord, save me. That's it. That's it. You pray that prayer sincerely. We want to connect with you. We want to pray with you, talk with you, and help you learn more about the faith. Because the work that God does doesn't need fancy words. God does his word all by himself. The spirit does it. It is the monogistic, one-way work of God. Does it all by himself. If you pray that, Lord, save me. Let's hear from you. Whether you are a new Christian, whether you don't know Christ, whether you are a seasoned saint who's cooled off, we want to hear from you. Let's pray together as a family. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the disciples' prayer. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand your will. Because you are our Father, who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us, Lord, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us for this message on the Lord's Prayer. We hope it was impactful for you. We hope that you, um, if you don't already have an established prayer life, uh, that you begin that today. And, and again, we're going to help you with that process. If you're brand new to this idea of prayer, uh, come join us for our 21 days of prayer. And all of that information is available on our now page, lifechurchcanton.org slash now. Also, if you have a prayer request, if you have something that you're going through, that is on our now page. You can submit a prayer request um, and just let us know how we can help. And there are people that are dedicated to praying for you. Um, we know that this has been a trying year for so many people, and uh, it's it's not been easy. And so we all need support. We all need community. And so I want to encourage you to pray. Um, many of you have been generous to the work of Life Church. I want to invite you once again, if you'd like to give, to do that as well at lifechurchcanton.org slash give. Well, we hope this has been a good start to your new year, 2021, and uh, we hope to see you very soon as well. Have a great rest of your day.